Finally reflecting back on the Job disaster, God felt that he understood a few things about himself. First, he needed a break. Some time off to regain his perspective. There were troubled, destructive, sometimes even self-destructive parts of him that he needed to get a grip on. Second, he needed an ally, someone he could trust to run things on earth while he recovered in heaven for a while. This ally couldn't be just anyone either. It had to be family. He needed that now. God couldn't create his own mother, obviously, even if it would have been nice to have a mother to cuddle and soothe him and tell him it was all going to be okay. Might some of my, hmm, ambivalence about women be related to the fact that I had no mother? Or if I did, that she abandoned me in a formless void, God wondered? He definitely didn't want a father. He was the father, the one and only father. He certainly wasn't going to create a daughter. That was a laughable idea. No, he had to have a son, a son who would work for him, who would love and cherish him, and who he would love and cherish right back. It felt wonderful to God just thinking about it. He considered how he wanted to bring his son, Jesus was the name he picked, into existence. Should he create him fully formed? That hadn't worked very well with Adam and Eve, so God decided against it. Should he create a baby Jesus and raise him in heaven, then send him down to earth at the age of, say, 30? No, he had no idea how to raise a child, and to the extent that he'd seen how human children behaved, how disobedient they often were, he didn't want to try it either. God decided to impregnate a woman and have her raise the baby Jesus. But how to actually do it? Would he have sex with the woman? John says now. God seriously considered the possibility, but he couldn't seem to find a woman who sparked his interest in that way. Also, why lie? He was inexperienced. The truth was that he had zero experience. He was, in other words, a virgin. And the idea of things going badly? That simply could not happen. So God chose to artificially inseminate the woman. Yes, that was a better idea. Question. Once the girl was pregnant, would she be Jesus' biological mother, or merely a womb to carry the young God around in? Answer. God wasn't sure, and he felt it didn't matter much anyway, but probably just a womb. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. God didn't pay much attention to Mary's pregnancy, nor did he really care much about Jesus' first 30 years of life. He did hear stories, apocryphal he assumed, of the boy's behavior, how he'd killed people for fun, and those made him smile indulgently and murmur, that's my boy. When Jesus turned 30, though, the wheels started turning. Jesus started to preach God's truth. He quickly gained followers. The boy was smart and charismatic, quite a unique personality. If he lived a hundred years, he might attract followers all over the world. Or why not allow him to live 900 years, like Methuselah? Let him travel the globe, spreading the word everywhere. Great idea, Lord, God thought to himself. At this point, however, a question began to insinuate itself into God's mind. Given the seriousness of the job he was giving Jesus, did he fully trust him? Sure, he was his son, but given that he didn't actually know this young man, they'd never met him and given how much was riding on him, God felt that he needed to put him to the test. So he had Satan tempt him. Because think about it, God is a jealous God, right? I mean, he's described that way in the Bible. And one of the Ten Commandments is 
place no other gods before me, right? But still he decides to create Jesus, who, I don't know, is kind of a threatening thing for a jealous God to create a potential rival. I mean, I really hope that Jesus doesn't turn on him, especially not when he appears to the Nephites in the Book of Mormon. Hmm. Curiouser and curiouser. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Osland, and I am joined once again today by Randy Snyder to finish part two of our interview with Chris Matheson, author of The Story of God, which you just heard a few excerpts from, and also the new follow-up, The Trouble with God, which includes Matheson's non-Mormon Nevermo take on the Book of Mormon and is really fascinating and a lot of fun, and we're going to talk about it today. So with no further adieus. Let's get right to it. Uh, the, 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 their, their modern conception of Heavenly Father is who they call him. He's this ultimately kind, you know, white-bearded, gentle, always looking out for your best interests. Sometimes he gives you a little tough love because you need it. Uh, and he's just so sweet and gentle and pure. And then you just, mm-hmm. and then you, then you refer to the pages of the Old Testament. You're like, what the fuck? You know, right. like these how, don't go together. They, they are not even this, in the same universe. Yeah. And God, I mean, I would say his, his lunacy <laughs> is strangely deeply built into the book of Mormon because what a crazy plan that is. Right. He knows because he knows everything. He's omniscient. If he's not omniscient, he's not God. He He knows. He knows from the moment he begins this thing, that it's going to fail utterly. I mean, he's got this whole big plan, you know, that's like culminating, culminates in Jesus's big appearance in, in the sky. And like, none of it works. In fact, the purpose of it, apparently, in the end, is for it to be kind of a cautionary. Right. Of like, of, like, don't, don't do that. Like, everybody dies. Yeah, and he knows that. I mean, except the 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 Indians, essentially. I guess um, it's a crazy plan. It's it's so, it's a kind of an insane plan. And I, and I wanted to ask you about that because because you you were very explicit um, as you were wrapping up your section on the Book of Mormon. You know, why, why would you start three thousand years uh, of of a plan that is doomed to fail? Um, and, yeah. and I'm, I'm curious, you know, so, so you're, the, you're the author, you're the one who's, who's uh, ascribing motive to God in this story. What, what are the measures for failure or success in anything that God does? What, what, what's his end goal? What, what does success look like to God? I mean, success, I think, is everybody loves it. I mean, right, I right, right. <laughs> I mean, that's what he wants. He wants everybody yes. to love him. I mean, he wants everybody to bow down and pray and what's new jerusalem in revelations it's basically everybody wears a white robe and has god stamped on their forehead and they pray to him all the time that's it that's heaven essentially i think that's what he that's what he wants he wants everybody to love him and they never do or or, and if they They don't always ripped away then he can destroy them and that's not that's not such a bad consolation prize to the god that you've created in this book he kind of enjoys that part of it too yeah, no, it's true. He likes punishment. He yeah. loves. He loves punishment. punishment. <laughs> oh, he loves it. Punish, punishment's really joyful for right. him. So you're right. 
it's it's not a bad it's not a bad consolation prize. Yeah, but if I, if the ostensible purpose is I I want to be loved, then his his plans are they don't work. They you know they don't really work out. I, I kind of like the tension that you that you uh, created between God and Jesus, where Jesus kind of stills his thunder. That was my favorite <laughs> yeah. part. Oh my gosh, I thought that was so brilliant. I don't know if you knew what you were doing theologically, but you hit it on the head. As far as Mormon theology, they do believe that they're two separate beings, whereas uh, Christian, the rest of Christianity, or at least Catholics and Protestants, they have this convoluted trinity thing and so uh but the funny thing about the book of mormon that you picked up on is that the book of mormon was written back when joseph smith theologically was trinitarian because he was a puritan at the time his theology changed right. uh a decade or a decade and a half later and mormons have been trying to square that with the book of mormon ever since you picked up on that but but you're uh the whole jealous of the sun and the sun you know show <laughs> Showing dad, I'll show you what I can do as he stomps down the stairway <laughs> down, to, down to the North American continent. I, I, I loved how, how God the Father is reduced to this small voice that just announces Jesus. And that's kind of, he's like, wait a minute, this isn't he's how the, I planned it. What's he's, the, he's the PA guy. Yeah, and Jesus just totally usurps the thunder. He's like, it's my game now, bitch. <laughs> Okay, so this next this next section that we're going to read, it's, it's happening at the point in the Book of Mormon when uh, Jesus has died in the Middle East, and there's all these uh, storms and earthquakes and things happening in the New World, and uh, God's wondering what's going on. <clears throat> As God watched all of this destruction taking place, one question filled his mind. Who exactly is doing all of these things? Because I most certainly am not. I would never ruin such nice level roads. God looked around for the answer to his question, and he suddenly stopped short. There, roughly 50 feet away from him, staring down at earth, stood Jesus. He'd obviously just been killed. His robe was filthy. His hands and feet were gruesomely wounded. His face was stained with dirt and sweat, etched with pain. This isn't my plan, God had thought to himself. Jesus isn't supposed to destroy cities like he's fast-forwarding to Judgment Day. He's supposed to fly down and tell the North Americans all about me. That's what he's supposed to do. I'm going to march over there, and I'm going to tell him to stop what he's doing right this minute. He has no right to take over my book like this. I'm not going to permit it. I'm going to shut him down immediately. But before God could do anything, it suddenly grew very dark. It was the kind of darkness that God hadn't experienced in a very long time, like since the void, really, and he didn't like it. God wasn't sure how much time passed at that point. Was it three days? Whatever it was, it felt endless. And then, finally, out of the darkness, he heard Jesus begin to speak. His voice was lower than God had ever heard it before. Behold, Zarahemla, I have burned it and its inhabitants with fire. Behold, Moroni, which I buried in the earth. Behold, Gilgal, which I sunk in the earth. And then Jesus said something which literally made God gasp. I am Jesus Christ. I created the heavens and the earth and all things that in them are. Jesus turned and looked straight at God at that moment. His eyes, fierce and compelling, and God found that he couldn't move. 
And then strangely, he heard himself speaking in a tiny little voice. Behold, my beloved son. God heard himself murmuring. In whom I am well pleased. In whom I have glorified my name. Hear ye him. At that moment, Jesus turned sharply away from God and marched straight down out of heaven. People on earth stared up in stunned disbelief as Jesus descended towards them like he was striding down an invisible glass staircase. Reaching the ground, Jesus stopped and looked around at the gathered crowd. I am Jesus Christ. I have drunk out of that bitter cup my Father has given me. I have suffered the will of the Father. God didn't like the way Jesus was looking at him as he said this. He didn't like it at all. And in that moment, he knew what only a perfectly omniscient and omnipotent God could know. Okay, it's official. Jesus is totally pissed. So how, how, how do you deal with the, 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 the God being omniscient, and, but he's still being surprised by things? Because that was something that that really, like, I loved that about this scene, that, like, Jesus totally takes this opportunity to go, all right, I'm in control. Even to the point where he's, like, using God as a ventriloquist dummy, you know, like, making God, yeah. like, reducing God to the yeah. role of uh, Harold and announcing Jesus' yeah. uh, return. Or, or, yeah. So how, how, how do you deal, deal with that with the omniscience part? Well, it doesn't really make any sense. Of course, yeah. Because how? Why would a character who's omniscient ever be surprised or right. mad? Yeah. And he seems upset a great deal of the time. So either he's not omniscient, and in which case he's just kind of a bullshitter and he's a fraud. And right. you know that's not really that is a take. I mean, you definitely can build that case, and it's funny. And I, I certainly toyed with that. Or he's an idiot. You know, like he knows things, but he forgets them. Uh, you know like he he does know it all but somehow he's so chaotic and disorganized that it doesn't stick he just is like he loses track um that's pretty funny too to me by far the the best interpretation of the character is that he's mentally ill he's deranged (laughs) there's something wrong with him he's he does know it's deliberate he's punishing himself the whole thing is a punishment machine he wants to punish he wants to be punished he wants to hurt mankind he wants mankind to hurt him he wants to hurt jesus he wants jesus to hurt him now why i don't know that's a very very disturbed character but i think it's the most interesting and i think it's the deepest read that i find and i thought it also led to the best blast because the idea that he's either a fake the wizard of oz or just a, a dumb shit. Um, yeah, those are funny. But I like the idea that he's kind of, he's just warped. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, going back to the story of God, when you're, when, when he's thinking about uh, creating a Jesus, and he kind of goes through his own lack of family history, that he doesn't have yeah. a mother. Maybe that's why he doesn't like women. Um, he, you know, he, he, he doesn't have a father and he doesn't want a father. He's the father. Um, he doesn't want yeah. a daughter. Why would you want a daughter? Girls are worth it. <laughs> you know, it's got to be right. a son. That's almost like this, that, that mental illness kind of line of thinking um, almost. Um, oh, it totally is. Yeah. I, when I, when I, ha- I had a certain place, you know, I started off just kind of, I don't know, just sort of taking pot shots at the thing, right? Just mm-hmm. like, oh my God, just yeah. rolling my eyes. It's just how ridiculous the whole thing was. And then I, I just 
spend enough time inside it and, and thinking about this character that at a certain point he came to life for me. And I thought, Oh man, what a brutal existence. What a, what a almost unimaginably lonely existence this is, right? You're never touched. You never, you never get any contact. You never have a friend. You never have uh, a wife. You never have, uh, children. Well, you have a son and you murder him, but deliberately right. you murder yeah. him. Right. Um, you, you're one kind of, you've got a bunch of toadies. A bunch yeah, of surrounded by the yes men. up to you all the time. Yeah. And your one kind of contemporary is your enemy, your nemesis, who maybe isn't ultimately your nemesis. I mean, yeah. it's hard to say. Yeah. Um, but I just thought, God, what a unspeakably horrible, hellish, frankly, existence this guy has yeah and then to top it all off not only are you alone all the time but the one person that you were bringing on to 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 help you and support you takes you know takes your role and is like i'm gonna be the one that punishes i'm the creator i'm the punisher now i'm i'm the god yeah he he really does just fast forward to like judgment day like when it's happening i'm doing it I, I I went back and I was listening to the story of God earlier this week, and, yeah. um, and and I was listening to when God decides that He needs some help and He's going to create uh, a, a Jesus. And it seemed, <laughs> of course, I'm thinking of it from the the Mormon perspective because I was raised that way, and you know the Book of Mormon is the centerpiece of right. Uh, so I'm thinking you're sure. setting up. You're setting up, you're setting the seeds, you're foreshadowing something that's going to happen later on in, in the book, but it, it, it kind of did, kind of didn't it, but it seemed like even from the start, you were setting up this rivalry between God and Jesus, or, or at least the insecurity yeah. of God that Jesus might someday usurp him. Um, t- talk about that a little bit. What, w- is that really what you were doing? Yeah, sure. I mean, everybody likes Jesus better. Yeah. And for good reason. Jesus is a more attractive character. Um, he's got some appealing qualities to him. God is just a big asshole. He's mean. <laughs> he's bombastic. He's he's irrational. Jesus is probably, you know, um, Mary gave gave him some good genes somehow, in <laughs> in some way, and so he's. Um, he's a more attractive character and people like him better. They love him. In fact, people yeah. love Jesus. Yeah. They do. They love him. They, to this day, people love Jesus to the, to the extent that they weep and, and they feel for the Jesus is so, um, revered and, and, and felt on a human level. And God, I don't think is at all. Oh, I love God. I mean, what does it even mean? What are you even saying? You know, I love God. Who? I mean, what? And why? Furthermore, he's horrible. But so I, to me, that relationship was really fraught because God lo- so desperately wants to be loved. Yeah. And he's not loved. And then Jesus is loved. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, it fried him. Yeah. yeah. But it really bugged him to, so much so that that's, that I had him basically go, you know what? He's not my son which is what the Quran is. That's what, well, that's his big move. Oh, the Quran. That's okay. not my son. That, that's not my son. That's what I was. That's how I was connecting the Quran. Into this. Um, and, and when you, and then I continued, yeah, then I continued back into the book of Mormon. And I thought, ah, 
at a certain point, he's like, ah, damn it. Yeah, he's my son. Yes, he's my son. And then he, he digs deeper into his relationship. The God-Jesus relationship is probably more front and center in uh, Book of Mormon than any of the other books, I would say. Interesting. I would say from an outsider standpoint, what the Book of Mormon does deliver on is that scene. Because if you're, if you're a Christian, right, and you just on some level, I, I think – that idea that like he was brutally murdered and it's just like, we don't get the satisfaction. And in revelations, you get the fantasy of like, well, he's going to come back and he's going to do all this stuff. But revelations is written in a, in a very crazy hallucinatory way. And it's hard to, (laughs) it's hard to look at it that way. Whereas in book of Mormon, it's like, all right, here you go. I mean, it's like the action movie and it's like, here it is here. It's badass, you know? He's like flying in and he's blowing shit up and he's killing people and it's and it's like revenge and um, why he's getting revenge on all these people because I think most of them believe in him actually um, it, but he's he's killing a lot of people maybe only the ones who don't believe is that the is that what we're to think that's what that's what the yeah the idea is is that um, <clears throat> the just before. Uh, the, the you know he he appears in Third Nephi. Uh, it they had gotten the wicked had gotten more wicked than they'd ever been up to that point, and the righteous had yeah. gotten more more righteous. <clears throat> and so it was a pretty clean cut of cutting the fat. You, you're talking you're talking about when the wicked set a date and a time, and they say if Jesus hasn't come by this time, then we're going to kill all you guys. No, they, that was that was at his birth. That okay. was uh, thirty years, thirty plus years earlier. That's. Um, I believe in Helaman, end of Helaman, first part of Third Nephi. So there was that moment, and then thirty years later was the destruction. Mm, um, and right. in that in that destruction, all the all the uh, righteous survived, and they all gathered at the temple in Bountiful, and that's where Christ had his uh, pedophilic fire circle. Ooh, <laughs> that's that's how he wrote it, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very strange. I like it when it just feels very pointed to me when Jesus is saying something about himself. He's talking about himself. They love me. They love me. And, another thing. Uh, another thing you picked up on was how like five, six hundred, five hundred years, a hundred years before Christ, there were Christians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and predictions even, yeah. of exactly when he's going to come where you don't get that in the old Testament because you know, Christ didn't exist. Yeah. And then revisiting that when you, you told the Jaredite part of the story too, that, Oh yeah, they were around to the tower of Babel too. People knew about Christ. <laughs> they were Christians. 2000 and, it, years. and it's so, it's so incredible. Like they know everything about it. Right. Like, yeah. Everything. It's not just little hints and little kind of allusions like, well, he'll sort of look like this. No, like they know everything about how it's going to go. They know about his life, what he's going to say, how he's going to die. What what his mom looks like. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's very peculiar. Like, it's a very strange story, actually. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's a lot of fun. and probably even for active Mormons, I I, I think um, it's fun to hear non-Mormons talk about Mormons and like to, for, for a non-Mormon to go in and read the Book of Mormon and pay enough attention to it to to write a satire of it 
Um, yeah, I, I think so. I, I know just for me, it's fun to read through that. I, I think for our, our listeners, um, others that they would really enjoy seeing your take on things because you stumble across things that, that we have. Then there's things that, that, that you touch on, um, you know, like the brother of Jared, why didn't Jesus just talk to Jared and why didn't he give a name to the brother of Jared? You know, that, that are questions that we ask ourselves, but then being, do you know that the brother of Jared actually has a name? Did you, did you come across that in in your research? Yeah. No, what is it? It's Mahanrai Moriankamer. Oh, nice. Name. Right. Isn't that wonderful? And, and, and this was just like Wait, some little throwaway, something that Joseph Smith told somebody off the cuff that's <laughs> recorded in a journal somewhere. He's like, um, you should name your child Mahan Rymoriankamer because that was the brother of Jared. Ha 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 ha. You know, or something like that, whatever he was, <laughs> was doing. And it was too long to etch into the cold plates. Yeah. So. Yeah. There was no character for it. I don't know. <laughs> Mahan Rymoriankamer. Wow. That's a mouthful. Moriankamer. Yeah. 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 First and last names. They had those back then too. It was, it was really convenient. <laughs> it's Mahanrai of the Moriankamers. You know, the yeah. Moriankamers, they live right. in the hills. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. The Moriankamers. And, and, and his brother, Jared. <laughs> <laughs> Jared and Mahanrai. Yeah. So, somebody, somebody won the, the, uh, the naming battle in that one. I'd, I'd never like, that was, so, you mentioned something that like was always strange to me and I don't know what, explains it but why does why uh, does the instrument have a hawaiian sounding name <laughs> yeah i like that section too with the liahona. liahona regarding the liahona knowing that the nephites journey to north america was going to be exceedingly difficult god had devised a special tool to help them the liahona and yes god was very proud of the name liahona sounds vaguely hawaiian doesn't it gabriel and that's quite interesting because Hawaiian doesn't even exist and won't for another thousand years. The Liahona looked like a cross between what would later be called a magic eight ball and the ball from the 1970s cult horror film Phantasm. Follow the directions of the Liahona, God had instructed Lehi, but remember, it will only work if you believe in it. An interesting tool that only works when people believe in it. Stop. Doubt undoes you. Enough. It always has. Silence. You know the truth. Silence, devil. Okay, so I've got to ask you, what what is this exchange? It surprised me so much when I saw it. I'm sure it's it's, it's like a, a payoff of, on something that you set up earlier on. But, but what's the Satan God exchange here around the Liahona? Um, I've used Satan throughout. I used him in the first book right. to kind of be the voice of doubt. Um, that when God questions himself, when God, um, that Satan is the one who, who pokes at him a little bit and introduces doubt into his mind. And that makes him really upset every single time. So I did that quite a bit in the first book, right. um, Job especially. And then I did it earlier in this book with uh, pertaining to Jesus and then pertaining to uh, Muhammad. So it's kind of just how I use the character. It's one of the ways I use the character. Of Satan. So, so what, what is Satan like in, in tying it to the Liahona because it's a, like when Satan's saying an interesting tool that only works when people believe in it, is is there any subtext yeah. to that? Well, subtext. 
I don't know. I, I, I mean, what do you, it's a kind of a funny thing. It's a religious, it seems to me that that's a move, this idea that these things only work if you believe in them, and is, therefore is it, it, they're not available for skeptics, because it, it's like magically it just, it just goes away. It just dries up if it's, uh, if any if any scrutiny or skepticism is applied to it, it only works if right. you believe in it. So I find that idea really specious, obviously. So yeah, yeah. Poking it, at it. No, it it, ma- it makes me think of uh, of church lady saying, "Isn't that convenient?" It's very convenient. Yeah, yeah. sure. I mean, yeah. like this stuff only works if you believe in it. So yeah. therefore, the non-believers, well, it's not available to them because, yeah. well, they're. They're they're wicked and they're gonna right. burn, you know right wicked and ignorant and you know they don't have a liahona so how can they know what's real or not about Hawaiian sounding names or any other anachronisms that actually make perfect sense yeah it's kind of strange isn't it I also I love uh, I don't remember where it is but the adieu adieu yeah, crowd right. and Jacob yeah I, I, at the end of Jacob it makes no sense yeah this is like what why are they speaking why French. <laughs> Yeah. Apologists would say a do had, had made itself into the English lexicon of the 1820s. It was a per- perfectly cromulent word to use. Perfectly cromulent. What, what, uh, what did, so did you read the Book of Mormon cover to cover uh, or did you kind of cherry pick it and go, I'll write about this part? <laughs> like, what was your experience going, like researching for, for what you wrote? Oh, no, I read it cover to cover at least twice, probably three times. No, wow. I read it very, very very, very carefully, in fact, yeah. because I wanted to try to understand, well, I was looking for stuff that I thought was funny and ridiculous, yeah. obviously, because that's what I do. Yeah. Um, and then I also wanted to try to see if I could get the story, get the underlying narrative and, and um, get, just get a feel for it, make a, a connection with it on a deeper level than just... I don't know, poking fun. I mean, I, I, I did want to poke fun at it, but I wanted to have a, a, a better understanding of it sure. than, than just that. So yeah, no, I re- I did, I did read it. Yeah. So what, one of the things that was a little, a little jarring, I mean, jarring is not the right word, but, but I, I just noticed it. You mentioned North America a lot as the setting for the yeah. Book of Mormon. Um, and, and the way that I was raised, I always thought it was Mesoamerica, you know, Central America. They talk about this narrow neck of land that divided the land south from the land north, and they were south of that narrow neck of land. And um, just wondering, what, what, were, what were the the influences that made you choose North America as the setting for the Book of Mormon? <laughs> Uh, you know, you might have just busted me, dude. <laughs> no, no, no. Just say Heartland theory. Say say that you research the Heartland theory and you're good. It's the Hartman theory. Glenn. Oh, Heartland. Clearly, yeah. oh, well, we could we could go. Heart, <laughs> I'm using the Heartland theory. <laughs> there you go. No, I, I don't know. Honestly, it sounded funny to me. It's uh, mm. I loved the idea that. Um, as a stage for all of this, it's not like a narrow, it, it, it is the entire, wait, 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 wait. 
So we're given a story that covers 1,400 years, right? Right? Isn't that correct from beginning yeah. to end? Yeah. Are we are we to think that the no, entire thing takes place like in Guatemala or something? Um, the 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 way that the way that I was taught it that was they don't move? was that that Lehi initially landed somewhere um, in Chile, and then they made yeah. their way northward, um, and that. You know, there's explorations. There's there's different times where they're going different places, and then ultimately, um, where Moroni hides the plates is Camorra, which some people would say, well, it's a different Camorra than the one that was in upstate New York, or others would say, no, it was the Camorra that was in upstate New York, and so there's all this territory that was transversed over this period of time. But <laughs> it's a conundrum. <laughs> but but in in all of the illustrations, you know, so when 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 we grew up looking at illustrations illustrations of the Book of Mormon, it's all Mayan. Um, influence uh mayan aztec but, but but where in the book does it say central america i mean oh, my no, it doesn't what yeah it doesn't it, it describes like narrow neck of land there's at one point where it says that it you could you could go from the east coast to the west coast in one day um so as, as far as like giving right. some geographical clues yeah, and there was a there was the big battle that was by by the the, the ocean, the, but the the biggest thing is that there's not one single solitary mention of snow. So it, uh, or, or, or chocolate bean, bean, but <laughs> or maize, or maize. <laughs> there's wheat somehow. Yeah, yeah. Is there much mention of the physical? reality of many of the places that we're told about though no like the, it's like. all vague terms like if they're in the wilderness they don't say jungle they yeah say wilderness. i would say it's pretty it is pretty general and it feels yeah. pretty loose and i guess i always assumed that the plates were buried in you know new york and therefore it takes place on the continent of north america that was always my assumption reading it but yeah. um I, if that's not how it, and I don't think he, he doesn't say in the book one way or the other where it is, right? I thought he was trying to explain where he was from. That was my understanding of it, that he was trying to explain, okay, here we are. He, and we've he got all Joseph these Native Smith? Americans. He being Joseph Smith, correct, okay. was, trying to, was trying to explain the, in part the Indians and right. was why are they there and who are they? Yeah. And um, that, that was what I, that was part of what I was going on anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Mo, mo, most of those native Americans were eaten by polar bears as they were crossing the Bering Strait. Uh, uh, you know. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Build a wall. Build a wall. Yeah. But it, it is, it is a debate among apologist Mormons. And, and so when I, when I was saying the Heartland theory, that the Heartland theory is the North American theory of Book of Mormon geography. Um, and then there's Mesoamerican theory of Book of Mormon geography. And who, who knows? It's, it's, uh, yeah, well, Mormons our age, just like you and me, Glenn, like we were all the pictures, it was so clear. Yeah, they were in that's the jungle. What, yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, Lamanites look like Mayans and, right. and Nephites look like Roman soldiers with Mayan clothing. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they do. So um, I, you're you're a writer. So yeah. I wanted to get your take on the prose and just basically the overall writing quality of the Book of Mormon. <laughs> it's horrible. Yeah, I mean it's horrible. I mean he's the worst, honestly. I mean you know he gets points 
for being audacious. He's, he's really just crazy audacious, this guy. And that he, and that he did this when he was in his twenties, I guess. Yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a superstar, man. I mean, he's a, he's just the most brazen, uh, ballsy guy. He's an astonishment as a writer. Oh, he's horrible. No, it's mud. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely dismal. Um, the character, the character work is terrible. Yeah. Uh, it's as structurally, it's terrible. It's not a well-told story. Rhythmically, it's bad. Things don't happen at the right time. Climaxes are not built up to correctly. They just pass. Um, <laughs> villains show up at the wrong moment. Uh, it's crazy redundant. I mean, it's insane. When he runs out of stuff to say, he just runs back to, to the Bible and just, yeah. you know, basically t- cuts and pastes and puts that in for a while. Um, I would say the only good stuff is, is the, 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 the various antichrists, which is a joke in itself. Cause how can you, you have a bunch of antichrists? Um, and the last <laughs> one is colossally lame, unbelievably lame. He just basically is described as an antichrist and then just seems like he gets just shot in the back running away. Practically. He's just nothing. But this is core horror. <laughs> no, no, not Corey Moore. I forget the last guy's name. Oh, is it Jacob? Um, it's Jacob. Yeah, it, it's Jacob. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's really lame. But Corey Moore is a good character. Corey he's got Horror. some charisma. He's, he's got some good arguments. He's, <laughs> he He's fascinating to me because to me, that's it's almost like Joseph Smith allows in. There's some other part of him that he he he. he there's something really super fascinating in philosophy and mesmerizing when a philosopher attacks their own ideas. And it doesn't happen very often. And really, in fact, only the greatest philosophers do it. Um, Plato does it in the Parmenides and Kant does it a little bit in uh, the critique of, of pure reason. And you know, you're in the presence of a very, very uh, spectacular mind when someone does that. Okay, I, I don't I don't look at Joseph Smith in that category, but he he attacks his own book. He attacks himself. He attacks his own premise. He, and Korihor is given some very good dialogue. And Korihor, yeah. I don't know how many chapters is he in. He he's not on stage and off that quickly. He he's on stage for a, a few like chapters. Three chapters. Anyway, yeah, three? It's like, I think it's like three chapters. Yeah, maybe more. That's. That stuff is good. That stuff's really good and, and really, really interesting. Um, that's the best thing in the, in, in the book, from my standpoint. When this Antichrist, Cory Whore, or Cory Whore, as God generally called him, had started to preach, well, that part was old news. Why are you waiting for Jesus to arrive? You can't possibly know that he's coming. Blah, blah, blah. Same old specious nonsense, thought God. These remarks had bugged God, definitely, but what had been genuinely enraging was that they'd worked. People had instantly fallen for Korhor's message, and that had led to, what else, whoring. Why do humans love to whore so damn much, God had demanded of a nearby angel, who'd shrugged so feebly that God had instantly ripped his face off. Your traditions are foolish. Their actual purpose is to keep you ignorant and frightened. Priests tell you that you're all guilty because of what Adam did. They like it when your heads are down. They don't want you to look up with courage and grasp your basic human rights. Priests want you to be scared of offending this made-up thing called God. 
who never has been and never will be either seen or known. God stared down at Korahor at that moment, heart racing. Why am I letting him say all these things, he wondered, on some level genuinely dumbstruck that a moment of such raw power was appearing in this profoundly worthless book? You'd have to be a monumental ignoramus to believe the Book of Mormon had by now crossed God's mind on numerous occasions. But God's man, Alma, quickly let the Antichrist have it with a shot of pure, irrefutable logic. And like with Alma, I want want to go, oh yeah? Like, I want to start, oh yeah, with everything that Alma says. Like, oh yeah? (laughs) You deny there's a God, Korahor, but behold, I say unto you that I know there is a God. Excellent argument, Alma, God cried down excitedly while reaching for some popcorn. Can you prove there's no God? God simply loved that one. You can't prove a negative, can you, whore? (laughs) Then Alma had bored in even further. You believe as you do, Korahor, because you're possessed by Satan, that lying spirit who is using you to destroy mankind. Well, sure. Given that Korahor was technically an antichrist, this wasn't that deep of an insight on Alma's part. But God still liked the way Alma had articulated it. He especially liked hearing Satan described as a lying spirit. Because when you got right down to it, lying was pretty much all Satan ever did. I tell the truth, he lies. End of story, God had noted internally. Korahor had then started to argue with Alma, but God had instantly yelled, I don't want to hear any more out of this guy, and he struck Korahor dumb. Oh, that had changed his mind and quick. Now Korahor suddenly believed in God. And, and I wish I could say this with, like, my lips sewn shut. <laughs> I do believe. In fact, I always believed I was merely being tricked by Satan. Knew it, God thought to himself. And then came the question God always found enjoyable. How shall I kill this asshole? When God had thought of the answer, he literally laughed out loud. I'll have people stomp him to death, God had cried in delight. Stomp on this puppety piece of trash until he's pulp. Some people called Zoramites had done just that, and it had been glorious to behold. The Antichrist got stomped to death, God chuckled to himself, shifting heavily in his talking throne. I love that. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's so disappointing that the only real interesting character gets killed off so quickly without being able to. It's the most interesting thing by far in, in the book is that he introduces all of these skeptical voices. It's a very weird, it's the most strange and revealing thing on a psycho dramatic level. I would say. Well, if, if you had read the doctrine and covenants and I don't recommend it, uh, Joseph Smith is always speaking, uh, in the voice of Jesus. And, and, uh, there's a couple of chapters where he's, uh, chastising Joseph Smith in the, in the voice of, of Jesus. And I I had it thrown at, uh, or my brother had it thrown in his face. Um, once like, would a, would a fraud chastise themselves in the doctrine and covenants? (laughs) (laughs) Um, yes. Turns out a good um, fraud, but it it does make him a more interesting character. Um, Smith, that is, because it is an interesting thing to do. It is an interesting thing to, to kind of attack your well, that, own ideas and give the, the character who's attacking your your ideas uh, center stage and a spotlight for a few chapters. That's pretty cool. I, I admire that. 
The only, the only glaring flaw with uh, the core horror thing is, is uh, his core horror characters giving 19th century atheistic philosophical arguments in a character from 100 BC. <laughs> so it's a, it's an, it's a little anachronistic. Do, do we, do we know that those arguments were not made? Does atheism in that sense not even exist in 100 BC? Uh, not in the fully formed way. Uh, I don't think that, uh, I mean, th- there certainly was atheism in, in Greek philosophy. Um, yeah. But I, I don't, I mean, I'm not a philosopher, of, but, but his, his arguments, the kinds of arguments he was making were clearly 19th century arguments. Some of what he's saying is just kind of common sense. Though. Some of what he's saying is like, you can't know this. This hasn't happened yet. These are, you can't possibly, you're waiting for something that you don't know for sure is going to happen. I mean, he's, he's, he's correct. I mean, he's viewed as evil for saying that, but, um, it's certainly a valid argument. I think. Well, the, the, but the better argument is Alma's, right? I mean, what a a rebuttal. (laughs) Yes. Alma's rebuttal. Right. Yeah. It was very forceful and very blunt. Basically, he told them, I know there's God. All the earth and all the things on it prove there's a God. Yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah. Victory. Right. Yeah, victory. And then Korihor dies some, I think he's stomped to death, right? Don't, don't they stomp on him? Yeah, was Korihor the one, Glenn, that died an ignominious death? Uh, I think so. I mean, I think they all did, but, but I think he was the one that was trampled by the Zoramites and, and that yeah. happened just a few cha- chapters before the Ramiemptum. Yeah. Well, I, I think or before that, after, maybe, they, maybe, maybe it was after the Ramiemptum. I don't know. I think they were all struck deaf and I, deaf and dumb. And then all of them without fail admitted they believed all along. So they weren't really atheists yeah, after yeah. all. Yeah. Yeah. No, they, they weren't really. And Satan was, Satan was Satan was tricking them, and and Satan was was kind of puppeting them a little bit. Um, but, but they became these very effective straw men for for me as a as a, a young Mormon teen, and and when I went on my my Mormon mission, just thinking there's going to be these Nehors and Sherems and Korahors out there. That um, how stupid are they? that they're denying the very evidence of God that's all around them. And, and here Korahor is like, an angel told me that there's no God. Oh, an angel did. What do you think the angel I'm from, dumbass? Like, I, it worked on me. It totally worked on me. That was, this is a great straw man. Yeah. 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 I, think, I think they are meant to be straw men. I just think that for some reason I can feel – you can almost feel the power of it taking over Joseph Smith. Yeah. And like, he lets this guy have his say. And it's almost like he's channeling all of his self doubt. Yeah. And he's channeling all, and it's because he's, he's a, he's an amazing um, salesman, this guy. I mean, he's an, he's an incredible kind of uh, confidence man. And, but he's got other things going on inside him and, you know, there's self-doubt. And so the drama of it, the emotional drama of it, I think is real and, and pretty yeah. powerful. And, and, and one of the less flat characters 
that are developed, which which I think is is where you see that identification between Joseph as the author and this this creation that he puts in there. Um, yeah, do that. Yeah, I like that. I mean, t- typically, um, typically, bad guys are good characters. I mean, mm-hmm. usually, bad guys just from any writer's standpoint. Every writer knows that it's it's, it's much easier to write a, an interesting villain than an interesting good guy. So it should be that the, that the Lamanites have some good characters, but they don't actually, yeah. because they never no None of them ever pop. None of them ever jump off the page. They should. And the best, uh, like the best, uh, war chapters are in Alma. We have the epic long war and, and how do the Lamanites yeah. play in that? Uh, a white guy goes over there and takes over. <laughs> yeah. It's, the racism is just so, uh, saturated throughout the whole thing. Yeah. Um, another thing you picked up on with the writing is that uh, whoever's good is so good, like all good, and whoever's bad is all bad. And you mentioned, well, they did finally have a character that was good and bad, but my my rebut to that is, no, but when he was bad, he was all bad, and then when he turned good, he was all good. <laughs> there's, no, there's nobody with, like, interesting, in, you know, internal struggles. Oh, yeah? What about Helaman and Pahoran? Huh? Helaman and Pahoran. Yeah, when when he like they're on the same side and oh, the they're writers? writing the letters back and forth. Yeah. And, you know, like they're they, there's some kind of nuanced perspective stuff in in that exchange. I think the best you could say is that he he made Pahoran into a a, a politician. Sure. Uh yeah, I guess maybe that's the best grayish. Yeah. Uh, it's really more of of off white. Hmm. Cuz Pahoran wasn't that it, bad. It felt- like he almost stumbled into a really interesting uh, ending. It's before Jesus arrives, and I, and I, I I can't tell you exactly where it is, but it's the moment where they make they come to terms with each other, the Nephites and the Lamanites, and they make peace with each other, and we come t- and and he tells us that there are there are bad. Nephites and there are good Lamanites and they're kind of, there's an evolution and a kind of a deepening and they live in peace. Yeah. yeah and, and guess, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you caught it, Chris, but guess what happens to their skin right after Christ? Um, everybody turns turn, white or everybody turns white again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, one of the interesting things about these books, reading them all lined up, is the Old Testament's not, it's not particularly racist. I mean, you kind of get the feeling everybody's sort of the same color, and the New Testament's not, not, not really racist. And the Koran is not really particularly racist. And then you get to the 19th century, and oh my God, God is suddenly <laughs> a virulent racist. Isn't that weird? God is suddenly horribly racist. And then you fast forward another 100 years to a, a bit of craziness, called The Book of Urantia, which I semi-recommend, but mainly not, which is ostensibly a Bible written by superior space aliens, and it's written in the 1920s, and it is the most colossally, it, it's just so insanely racist. So it, it, God just gets more and more racist uh, as these books go along, but, it's, but he's really racist in the Book of Mormon, where he hasn't been before. Isn't it interesting how much God seems to reflect uh, the, the personalities and traits of his believers. <laughs> yes. Quite interesting. I would say. 
Yeah, he's a mirror, right? I mean, that's what he actually is. I mean, of course, we're atheists, right? There is no such guy. There is no such guy. He's us. He's our reflection in the mirror. And we're looking at ourselves. And we're seeing what we are and what we think and what we want and what we're scared of and what we hate um, and what we love. And look at it that way. He, you know, he, he's, it's always very revealing. Every, every portrayal of God is a, is a great picture of where people are at that point. Yeah, that's why American Jesus is a Republican. Yeah, pretty hardcore Republican, I'd say. It's pretty yeah. strange. It's pretty, a little difficult to square that with Jesus on the page, but yeah. Um, yeah. So, so when, does, when does your book come out, Chris? It comes out May 15th. May 15th, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we will, I, we will publish this uh, on or around that day um, to help you out with that. Do, do you have any other plans, any ideas for uh, taking this God character into uh, meeting the Greek gods? Another story? Or, or, I, or I think I've kind exploring of, the Vedas? <laughs> I, I think I want to take on the Buddha. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what did the Buddha ever do to I, I, you? I think he needs to be <laughs> deflated. I think that this cloak, uh, this this gassy kind of uh, sanctimoniousness about Buddhism needs to be stripped away. I think it's kind of just a big joke, just like the others, honestly. So how would you do that? Would, would it be the, the, the Christian god um, meets Buddha or that he takes off a mask and realizes that he is Buddha or, you know, how, how do you do that? I know I would, I would just do it using him, using the Buddha, actually. It kind of a similar sort of story, but mm-hmm. the Buddha's story, mm-hmm. um, which is ludicrous and bloated and inane and ultimately fatuous, like all these things are, mm. because there's really just not that much to say. Whatever there is to say about how human beings should behave, it's it's pretty simple. It's it's kind of golden rule stuff. There's not that much. Um, have you and, uh, uh, have you ever read the the book Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist uh, by Stephen Batchelor? I might have. Yes, I did read that one. Uh, yeah, I did actually. Yeah, he. I mean, he does a good I, I job did. of stripping away a lot of the bullshit. That's been kind of. I just, um, I disliked it. I disliked that book intensely, oh, and I dislike wow. him intensely. And I and Western Buddhists are among the most insufferably smug human beings I have ever come across in my life. And I just want them to get a cream pie in the face. I think that you're in L.A. because you're surrounded by them, right? <laughs> Well, no, I live in Oregon now, but I, but I did grow up around that, and I've worked in Hollywood, and you know, it's maybe I've interacted with these people more than others, um, but there's this sort of faux depth and humility and simplicity, but it's, okay, this is the Buddha in a nutshell, right? The Buddha talks a great deal about um, moving away from ego. Uh, ego is a trap. Ego is something that must be overcome. The Buddha also has his followers call him perfect one. So there you go. Um, are you are you familiar with a recent study that was done that really surprised the guy who was doing the study? He did not expect the results. Um, what was it? 
uh, the people who scored by far the highest of being afraid of dying uh, were Buddhist monks, uh, Tibetan Buddhist monks. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God, I love that. <laughs> well, oh if God, they don't believe that. in the self, why would they be afraid of the self ending if the self doesn't oh exist? Oh, my God, that is so beautiful. Because they're supposed to, like, look forward to it, right? It's nirvana. It's the end. Although, they, presumably, they're scared. Because you can get re, you know you can get reincarnated as a bunch of bad things, like bizarrely a ghost. You can get reincarnated as a ghost, which makes no fucking sense to me. But you can get reincarnated as a bunch of so maybe that's what they're scared of. You can get reincarnated in hell, um, and and the, boy, they for a religion that's all about love and compassion. Boy, they spend a lot of time talking about hell. Oh man, do they rub their hands together in glee about all the different hells. Um, that's awesome. I love that. That makes that weirdly makes sense to me. Book of Mormon stories that my teacher tells to me are about the layman nights in ancient history. Long ago, their fathers came from far across the sea. In the land, if they lived righteously. Hello there. This is your brother. And I have something to say concerning these people. If they do not listen to every minute of every episode of Infants on Thrones, they shall be totally missing out. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum money. They could buy anything in this world with money. On second thought... Just give the Quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. A small token for which they have pledged their eternal souls. Anyone for the closing prayer? Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.